And we're turning this morning to 2 Kings 4. We'll be starting in verse 8. We'll read through verse 37, the account of the Shunammite woman, Elisha, and her son. 2 Kings 4, you can find that on page 574, and again we'll start in verse 8. And before we read that together, let's pray. Lord, your word is life. You speak and things come to be. And your word never fails. We see that again and again and again in the words of kings. Your word never fails. And so we pray that it would not fail today to accomplish everything which you have set out for it to accomplish. For the binding up of wounds, for the breaking of the proud, for the lifting up of the humble, and for the giving and imparting of life. Your life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings 4, starting in verse 8. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told the servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. 
Didn't I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes. Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. This is a, a fitting place to start our time in the Lenten season. You know, I'm not really one much for ashes on the forehead or things like not eating meat on Fridays and only eating fish on Fridays. Those kinds of things don't really ring any bells with me. But I think it's a helpful season in the church calendar. And you may notice something. It's very subtle, but every once in a while, the, the runner on the communion table behind me changes colors. And during the Advent and Lenten season, the color is purple. And the reason for that is that purple is a royal color. In the time of Advent, we look forward to the coming of the King. And in the time of Lent, we recall that Jesus was mocked in purple. When He was being mocked and beaten by the Roman soldiers, they clothed Him in a purple robe and they made fun of Him for being the, the King of the Jews. But as we as we know, they were right to, to robe him in purple. They were simply wrong to mock him. But this is a, a fitting place to start our time in Lent because so many of the emotions in, in the Scriptures in the last week or so of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection, so many of those emotions are present in this story as well. Tonight we'll be reading, Lord willing, and hearing a, a sermon from Pastor Aaron on the triumphal entry. And it's a time of joy as Jesus comes into the, into the city of Jerusalem. These crowds are, are following Him and He's riding on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah. And they're, they're shouting and they're waving palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's a time of great excitement. David's Son comes to David's city and He comes, they think, to sit on David's throne. And He's going to restore David's kingdom and this begins the the beginning of the messianic age the time that they have been waiting for and this is one who can heal the sick this is one who can make people walk who can't walk and see who can't see and can 
feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread. And this is one who can raise the dead. What can possibly go wrong? But then everything goes wrong. Suddenly the one who can raise the dead is himself dead. And he lies in a tomb. And all the hopes are dashed. And the disciples scatter. And the women weep. The king of the Jews is dead while Pilate and Herod and Caesar still reign. How can this be? The joy turns to devastation. But then there's greater joy. The king of kings rises from the dead. The king of kings lives again. And his life at the resurrection is greater than his life before. Now he is immune to pain. Now he lives never to die again. And more than that, now he lives to give resurrection life to all who belong to him. And he's vindicated. That cycle, we see that cycle, the The joy, and then the disappointment, the devastation, then the the greater joy. That same cycle is present in this passage. And very fittingly, the greater joy in the life of Jesus is with his resurrection. The greater joy in this passage is with the resurrection as well. So the story kicks off. I'm not going to read all the verses in the story. You can track with me in in the scriptures ahead of you, but... The story kicks off in the first verses, verses 8 to 13, and the focus is on, the focus is on this, this woman. She is a righteous woman. The attention is almost entirely on her. Her husband is a character who seems only to be mentioned by necessity. She's a well-to-do woman with a real hospitable heart. And whenever the prophet Elisha comes through, she invites him for a meal, and he comes often, and she persuades her husband, says, well, let's build an extra room onto the house. We'll, we'll, we'll build an addition. We'll go up. We'll build this extra room on top. And so her husband agrees, and they build this extra room. And whenever the prophet's in town, he sleeps there in her house. And notice that she initiates. She wants to build the room. She wants to show the hospitality. She's the one who loves the prophet. And then as we get into verse 13, we see that there's no agenda. Right? There's no ulterior motive. Because we get, as we get into verse 13, Elisha offers to do something for her. What can we do for her? Well, can we talk to the king for you? How about the commander of the army? Is there someone that's bothering you? Is there something that's bothering you? Is there something that you would like to have that you don't have? I mean, after all, the king and the commander of army uh, of the army owe Elisha a favor or two. He's just saved their lives when they were about ready to bake to death out in the plains of Moab. So what can he do for her? And she says simply, I have a home with my people. In other words, I am, I am content. She loves the prophet. She loves the prophet not for what he can do for her. She loves him just because he's a prophet. Because he belongs to the Lord. This is the kind of person that Jesus commends in Matthew 10. He says, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. One has to wonder 
if while Jesus is saying those words so many hundreds of years later, that he would have this woman in mind as one who received a prophet because he was a prophet, not because she could make a profit off of him. And the woman stands in a long line of godly, blessed women in the Scriptures, women whom the Bible exalts. This woman is in Kings. Kings is a landscape littered with wretched, no-good men, and then shining like a, a beacon of righteousness in the midst of them is this gracious, hospitable, loving woman. And it's apparent that the Lord loves her. Because we move into verse 14, Elisha, Elisha is dead set. I am going to give this woman something. But what do you give someone who already has everything they want? Maybe you've come across this. Right? There's somebody who has all they need. Right? Maybe it was your parents when they were bankrolling you when you were younger. Your parents give you the money and, and you think, well, what can I possibly give to my parents? They're the ones who are, who are funding my life. What do, what do they have what do they not have that I can possibly give them? For me, this, it was my grandma. My grandma was very generous with us. And every year at, at Christmas time, I would face the same, the same quandary. What do you give someone who gives so much to you? You can never, you can never be more generous than what she is, so, so how do you possibly match her gift? Really, all she wants to do is go out for dinner with you. But what do you do? What do you give to somebody who already has everything that they need. So that's the situation here with Elisha. But Gehazi, the servant, he has an idea. <clears throat> she doesn't have a son. And her husband is old. Just like Abraham and Sarah. Old, childless. And really no way of fixing it. So Elisha promises her that she will receive a son within the year. And you would think, you would think that she would jump for joy, that she would be excited, that she would uh, hug him or something else in her excitement, but her, her reaction is, is much more real than that. No. no don't, don't play with me. Don't toy with me. Don't tease me. No, you see, I have, I have dealt with this demon. I have cried my tears. I have done my weeping. I have, I have been through my sadness. I have endured the pitying looks of the other women in town as they walk their children through the village. I have endured all of that. Don't tease me. I'm content. Just let me be. It's like Elisha takes a razor to a, a fully healed scar and begins to reopen it. And she cries out, don't play with me. But he's not playing. And he's not teasing. Exactly what he promises comes to pass. Within the year, she conceives a son. The Lord delivers on Elisha's promise. And this woman, just like Sarah, or Samson's mother, or Hannah, Samuel's mother, or Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, this woman receives a child miraculously. But there's something different about this woman from the others. The others all had sons who were extremely significant. 
Isaac was necessary if God's promise to Abraham was going to be kept. Samson keeps the Philistines at bay, fights them off, preserves God's people. Samuel's a great prophet, anoints King David, the greatest of the kings, and John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets who prepares the way for the Lord. But this woman's son is unnamed, never heard from again. He's really, generally speaking, irrelevant. And that's because her son isn't born for anybody else. Her son is given for her. Because God loves her. Because God wants to show kindness to her. Because God is being good to her. God has no ulterior motive in giving the son, just as she had no ulterior motive in caring for the prophet. And so she receives the prophet's reward indeed. And what a joy for her. But then the joy turns to disappointment perhaps even to devastation, as you move into the next section, verses 18 to 21. If I was going to give a, a subtitle or a caption to these verses, I would, I would play on the old song, and I would title these verses, Grief Greater Than All Our Joy. You see, now, now the child has died, and now things are worse than before all, all the joy of having the son is now swallowed up by all the grief of losing him things are worse than if she had never had him at all that's how she feels imagine imagine that you have uh, a child a young child maybe 5 to 10 years old and and you re- you receive the diagnosis that she has cancer So you say, well, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this in every way that we possibly can. And you end up living at St. Jude's Children's Hospital to get the best care for a couple of years. And you go through everything that needs to go through, all the expense, all the exhaustion, everything it takes. And finally, at the end of a couple of years, you hear those glorious words, your child's cancer is gone. And you throw a party, and your church comes to the party, and everyone is excited, and you cry tears of joy, and then a week later, on the way to the bus, she gets hit by a car and dies. And all your joy, all the joy of hearing those words, all the joy of hearing those words, your, your child's cancer is gone, is swallowed up by a greater grief. That's how it is for her. The child is gone. She finds herself in a place of desperation. But as one commentator, Donald Wiseman, put it, the woman has lost her child, but not her faith. Because she takes her child, and she goes upstairs to the prophet's room, and she lays the child on his bed. She lays the child on the bed of the one who had promised the child to her in the first place in the place of prayer. And then she gets moving. She takes action. And we see that the the dramatic sequence of events continues then in verses 22 to 30. If I was going to give a, a subtitle to these verses, I would play off a different song. Michael W. Smith has a song with a line, I think we've sung it 
You are my desire. No one else will do. Well, that's how this woman is. No one else will do. She desires to get to Elisha, and she's not going to stop for anyone or anything. No one else will do except for the prophet. And we see that she does this in a number of ways because she's, she's rather crafty. She doesn't tell her husband that her, that her son is dead. She just sends a message. I would like a donkey and a servant. I'm going to go see the prophet for a little bit. And her husband must have thought this was strange. I mean, the boy just went home with a headache, and it's not a special day. Why are you going to the prophet? But he agrees. So she gets a, she gets a donkey and she gets a servant, and so she brushes off her husband. And then Elijah, or Elisha rather, sees her off in the distance, and he says, well, well, Gehazi, go ask her, what's wrong? Is everything okay with you, with your husband, with your son? Everything is all right, she says. She brushes off the servant. She doesn't want him. Doesn't even want her husband. And then she comes finally to her husband, rather to the prophet. And when she comes to the prophet, when she comes to her the man that she has been waiting for, to God's main man, to God's main mouthpiece, then it all comes out. And then she breaks decorum big time. Notice that Elisha oftentimes uses the servant as a go-between. There is a, a distance, a natural distance between the prophet and other persons. But now she brushes off the other persons and she comes right to the prophet and she falls down and she grabs him. This is a big breach of etiquette. This is something that would have been seen as extremely rude. And Gehazi sees it and he's offended at the attack on the honor of his master and he's about to go tackle her off the prophet. And Elisha says, leave her alone. She's in great distress, and the Lord has not shown me why. We might remember a, a, a similar time from the life of Jesus. In the life of, of Jesus, when the, when the woman took the jar of ointment or of perfume, and she poured it over Jesus, and the disciples were despising the woman in their hearts, especially Judas, but the others as well, were despising the woman in their hearts. Ah, oh, couldn't that have been sold and the money given to the poor? Jesus says, leave, him, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And so it is here. The prophet accepts her grief. And then it all and it all bursts forth as if from a volcano. Did I ask you for the sun? Did I want this? When you promised this, did I jump for joy? No. I said, don't play with me. Don't tease me. Why have you done this to me? I was content. Why couldn't you just be happy with that? I didn't build the room so I could have a son. I didn't build the room so you could give me this special favor. I built the room just for you. Why couldn't you just take my hospitality and be done with it? Why did you come? Why did you give me this son? I didn't ask you for this. Why have you done this to me? But lying underneath all that grief, is a plea. He doesn't ask for anything. 
just like the widow from last week's passage, didn't ask for anything. She just tells the situation. But there's an implied request. I want my son back. Now what faith? What faith that she believes her son can live again. And Elisha springs into action. He, he gives his staff over to Gehazi and says, run. Don't say hi to anybody. Don't respond to anybody. Run. Put the staff on the boy's face and we'll see what happens. And she says, uh-uh. No way. I don't want any servant of a prophet. I want the prophet. I don't think any servant of a prophet is going to raise the dead. I want you. And if you're not going anywhere, then I'm staying right here. That's pretty bold. And so, the prophet goes. Then the great grief turns into even greater joy as we move into verses 31 to 37. You see, the woman is vindicated again because she was right. The servant couldn't raise her son. The servant gets there, does exactly what Elisha said, and then nothing happens. Right? This isn't a job for a servant of a prophet. This is a job for a prophet. And so Elisha comes and he prays. This is not going to be Elisha's doing. If someone is going to raise the boy, it's going to be the Lord who raises the boy. And then what does he do? But this strange thing, he lays himself out upon the boy, hand to hand, mouth to mouth. And then the boy gets warm, he gets up, he walks around, he gets down, he does it again, and then the boy sneezes seven times, and then he opens his eyes. Now why do all those things, why do all those things happen? You might ask that, and I would say, the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Just like the prophet. But that's not the point. The main point of the passage is vindication. That God vindicates all kinds of characters in this story. First, God vindicates the prophet. God vindicates the prophet when the prophet says, you'll have a child, you have a child. The prophet can raise the dead, just like Elijah could raise the dead. So too, Elisha is a great prophet. And the prophet's honor is vindicated in the, the raising of the boy. He is not a cause of cruelty, but he is a cause of joy in life. But then secondly, God vindicates the woman. He vindicates her hospitality. And he vindicates her faith. What an unreasonable faith. I mean, maybe if her Maybe if her son was sick, the prophet could do something, right? But he's dead. Once you're dead, you're beyond help. You're beyond hope. When you're dead, you call for a coroner. You don't call for a doctor. It's just like in the time of Jesus. There's a, a synagogue ruler named Jairus, and his, his daughter is very sick. She's sick to death, and he, he, comes, and he comes to Jesus and says, uh, my, my little girl is sick to death. Won't you come, please, and help her? And Jesus agrees to do so. And while they're on the way to his house, a crowd comes from the house and says, it's too late. Your little girl has died. Leave the teacher alone. 
Instead of turning around and agreeing that it's too late, instead of that, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. And he did. And his daughter lived again. This woman believes that the God of Elisha who gave her her son is the same God who can give him back. What an unreasonable faith. Except, of course, in the eyes of the world, faith is always unreasonable. Faith has been unreasonable from the very beginning, and it will be unreasonable in the very end until Christ returns to vindicate the faith of his people. And this is an act of faith. We read in the very back end of Hebrews 11, verse 35, that by faith women received back their dead by resurrection. In fact, that whole, that whole passage in Hebrews 11 is about the vindication of faith. And we can read that passage starting in verse 32. The author of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by a resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. What foolishness to call for the prophet after your son has died. What foolishness to be sawn in two, to be destitute, afflicted, stoned, imprisoned, mocked, flogged. It is foolishness. Unless, of course, it's worth it. Unless, of course, it's true that Elisha's God can raise the dead. And will those people, will they all be vindicated the ones who are willing to die, that they might rise to a better life, will they be vindicated? Well, certainly they will be. Not so quickly as this woman's faith was, but just as surely nonetheless. And who else will God vindicate? But God vindicates himself. God proves himself to be a God who can give life and who can give it again. The God who is powerful enough to give life and the God who is powerful enough to give eternal life. We see this pattern with Jesus that God vindicates himself. One of my favorite, if, if I'm allowed to say it that way, one of my favorite things that Jesus says from the cross comes in his quotation from the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That as Jesus hangs on the cross, he suffers the wrath of God in himself. That he suffers as the substitute, that he absorbs all the 
punishment of God against all the sins of all of His people. And He cries out in that forsakenness, why? He cries out with the words of that psalm, why have You forsaken Me? All My bones are groaning within Me. He is abandoned. But there's more to Psalm 22 than forsakenness. The psalm goes on. And when you come to verse 22 in Psalm 22, we read this, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus knows that he is forsaken. But he knows that one day he will be vindicated. That he is dying. But that one day he will live again. Everything seems wrong at the cross. If you were standing at the foot of the cross, everything would seem wrong. Why does the innocent man die? Why is the one who can raise the dead, dead? Why does the light of the world lie in the darkness of a tomb? Why? Everything would seem wrong. But then on the third day, the joy which turned to despair turns to even greater joy. Sometimes it seems in our own time that everything is wrong as well. The members and the pastor of the early reign covenant church in China, a church that preaches from the same scriptures and believes even in the same confessions as we do, they're carted off into prison more all the time and not heard from. Young Nigerian girls are kidnapped and ravaged by Islamists. Our own culture rips apart at the seams. Churches by the hundreds forsake the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Everything seems wrong. Is God still good? Has God forgotten? Is He still sovereign? Can He make it right again? He can make it right again. He's still sovereign. He's not forgotten. And He's still good. And we will see. We will see. We live in a a strange time. We live in a time where the first rays of dawn have come across the sky and the darkness of the shadow of death has begun to be beaten back. But it is not full day yet. The shadow of death still lingers. There is still darkness across the face of God's creation. We live in a day of the already but the not yet. But the yet... The fullness comes. And if I may mix sons, the sun of righteousness will rise fully. And the last vestiges of the shadow of death will be dispersed. We live in a time of disappointment, sometimes even of devastation, certainly of grief. But the day comes when God banishes all those things 
once and for all. The day comes when God vindicates His people. When God vindicates His Son. And when He finally and fully vindicates Himself. And oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, what a day it will be. What a day it will be to see your Son in all of his glory. To look back upon all the sorrows and sadnesses and losses of life, of this life, say they seem only a shadow, as like only a dream compared to the glory which awaits us. Yes, that will be a great day. And we pray that while we live, while we live as a mocked people, while we live as a people who are said to be yesterday's news, who are said to be holdovers from ancient days, as, as we live in a time where our brothers and sisters are cast into prison, kidnapped or killed around the world, as we live in a day which is increasingly hostile to your true churches even in our own land, we long for the day, together with the saints around your throne, we say, how long? How long until you vindicate us? How long until you vindicate Christ? How long until you vindicate yourself? We know it comes, and we pray that it comes soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for our song of response. He lives. Number 285, we'll sing verses 1 and 2, and then we'll sing verse 3 after the benediction. Let's stand to sing.